You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Nice to be with you. Good to have you. Thanks for making the time. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Bruce Filer, well-known writer, author of a number of books, including the mega, mega, mega bestseller, Walking the Bible, some years ago. Uh, more recently, Council of Dads, which was turned into an actual NBC TV show, which is more than I can say for any of my books. But neither of those books is what we're here to talk about. You are the author of the brand new book, Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change at Any Age, which is good because that covers my age group. There it is. You're holding it up. Hold it, hold it up right in the middle so that it obscures your face. Be selfless about it. There you go. That's the book. Nice looking jacket. Nice, very uh, alluring title. And we have a lot to talk about. Uh, before we get to that, uh, uh, because this is, I think, relevant in a way that we will eventually come to, but you are also the author of the uh, Filer Faster thesis. And I'm proud to say that I was present at the creation of the Filer Faster thesis. Is that uh, consistent with your recollection? That is consistent with my recollection. In fact, as we get started here, I feel obliged to point out that this is risky, that you and I have known each other for 25 years. That was, that was it, risky, but you, you pulled it off. I think we got through Well, that, what's yeah. risky is that what I was going to say was I know that it will, it's counter to your reputation as someone who punctures, uh, you know, pretension and abhors sentimentality, but you're actually a very good friend, and I'm, I'm concerned hey, Bruce, that, I, that I will ruin your reputation. Don't get mushy. <laughs> but yes, I do consider us good friends. I've known you like a long time. I met you at a party in D.C. when you were uh, an up-and-coming writer. I think you had just published a book called Learning to Bow that had been very well-reviewed in the New York Times about your time in Japan. And you've impressed me since then as being like a writer's writer. I mean, you go out and you do stuff and you write about it. You became a clown in a circus for a while, wrote about that. You followed Garth Brooks around and wrote about country music. You wrote about NASCAR, didn't you? Or did, did you did you write about NASCAR? No, you just know NASCAR by virtue of your Southern heritage or something? I come from the South. There was a time where that book on country music was going to be a book about country music, NASCAR, and barbecue, and it became ah, a book about country music. That's it. And, and we do have that South, in my case, Southwest thing, in your case, in common. That's how well I know you. I not only know your books, I know what <laughs> books might have been. And in fact, you know, I think I, I now recall a lunch with you that may uh, may coincide with kind of the first stirrings of this book. I remember you talking about the importance of stories. Yeah. And we talked about the radio show The Moth. Yeah. And this was some years ago. And stories uh, become a, an important part of, of this book, the importance of stories. You, you think that we are not um, doing enough storytelling in a certain sense. Um, that I guess we can we can come to eventually, unless you want to say something about it now. It does seem preposterous in this moment where tell your story has been a kind of uh, kind of badge of contemporary life for a while that that a certain kind of storytelling isn't happening. But yes, I do uh, believe that. But before we get into that, I will go back. Yes, in two thousand, it was in February of two thousand. You and I went to see our mutual friend. Mickey Kaus do a reading at the Barnes and Noble on the Upper West Side. And it was between 
the New Hampshire primary and the South Carolina primary that became uh, the last stand of George W. Bush over John McCain. And we went to have dinner at a restaurant that just went defunct last week. We just were uh, tweeting about this. And that's where we, we, I sort of had this idea that we were in a world where, where change was happening faster, information was coming at us more quickly, and that people would process the the McCain win in New Hampshire and uh, Bush would be able to hold him back in South Carolina because we, we just move through information in life a lot quicker. Right. And what is actually interesting is how that idea that Mickey then coined the Fire Faster thesis credited me to his credit in a way that is actually in its own way an underpinning for kind of the idea that I talk about in this book, which is that life is coming at us faster and we have a lot more transitions to go through in our lives. That's right. Uh, I remember, well, my, my uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law, Sarah and Barry were there, I think. And, uh, and yeah, and Mickey named it file a faster thesis. Now I think it has its own Wikipedia entry. Um, and, And yeah, let's get to the relevance of it. Right away. I, right. I mean, one one uh, argument you make in the book is that we are living in a nonlinear age, um, and that has something to do with the, with the the pace of change. Tell us uh, what you mean by nonlinear age. So let me just walk through a, a little bit of the backstory because it brings up the storytelling and the and the nonlinear at the same time. So what happened to me? I mean, you were kind enough to. Uh, exaggerate my life story a little bit, but I lived what I now think of as a linear life. I grew up in in Georgia. I, in my 20s, went off and entered various cultures, Japan, country music, the circus. Uh, But I discovered very early on in my life what I wanted to do with my life. I did it for no money for a while. I had some success in my 30s. You mentioned Walking the Bible and a series of books and TV shows. I got married and I had children. But then in my 40s, I had a back-to-back-to-back non-linear series of events. I basically got walloped by life. And, uh, you know, I got cancer, as you mentioned, that became Council of Dads. Um, I almost went bankrupt in the Great Recession. But the, the sort of searing event of all of this was that my dad, who has Parkinson's, tried, you know, Parkinson's affects your movement, <laughs> but it's fundamentally a dopamine disease and it affects your mood too. And so he got very depressed and tried to kill himself six times in 12 weeks. So in the middle of this, we were dealing with family and medical and business. It's a family business here. But I'm the story guy. I'm the meaning guy. So on a whim, on a Monday morning, I send my dad a question about his life. Tell me about the toys you played with as a kid. And he couldn't even move his fingers at this time, Bob. And and he dictated his answers to Siri and uh, spit it out. And then he edited it with my mom. And then I sent another one. Tell me about the house you grew up in. Tell me, how'd you join the Navy? How'd you become an Eagle Scout? How'd you meet mom? And he backed in to writing. This man who'd never anything longer than a memo, he backed into writing an autobiography. This went on for five years. And kind of the way I lived my life, I thought, I should write about this. But I Unlike the way that my life, I got totally stuck because I couldn't figure out whether it was the story of storytelling or the story of my dad or my story or kind of whatever it was. And yes, this was happening in a moment when storytelling was kind of catching hold. You've got The Moth, you've got Humans of New York, you had StoryCorps. But these were all a certain kind of storytelling, kind of short, episodic uh, uh, ways of, of, of telling story. But it turns out there's an entire academic field called narrative gerontology. Narrative adolescence was 
was just being founded at that time. Narrative medicine was just getting going. Um, but I couldn't figure out what to do. And so I put it aside and I did another book. Um, and what happened was that I, a couple years later, I went to my 30th college reunion, actually, and I was moderating a panel. This is in New Haven. I was moderating a panel of the Yale class of 87, and I had all these prominent classmates. And on the way up, the person who was driving with me just had a horrific experience. He was closing a big real estate deal, and his partner had a nine-month-old who went down for a nap and, and never woke up. And so I just had the story in my head and I was in front of all these people and I had all the resumes of these very impressive people and I just couldn't do it. I just literally couldn't do it. So I ripped them up and I said, look, losers don't come to their college reunion. I don't want to hear about your success. I want to hear about your struggles. And that night, person after person came up to me and said, I had a similar story, basically, like my wife had a headache and went to the hospital and died. My uh, boss is trying to steal from me. I'm being sued for bomb practice. Uh, but somebody else was saying, my, I just got diagnosed with, uh, my brother got diagnosed with stage four cancer or whatever it was. And what everybody was saying was like, the life I'm living is not the life I expected. I'm living life out of order in some way. And that was sort of the first sense that there was something kind of nonlinear, some disconnect between how people were living and how they thought they should be living. And I called my wife, Linda, and I said, look, I, no one knows how to tell their story anymore. I've got to figure out what to do. And that led me off on this journey across the country, collecting what became hundreds of life stories of Americans in all 50 states, people who lost homes and lost limbs, changed careers, changed genders, got out of cults, got out of hate groups, got sober. Um, and then I had a whole team of people and I did something I'd never done in 30 years of writing books is that we spent a year coding these stories and debating them and having these murder boards, as I called them. Um, around my office and the big idea that emerged now answers your question with that backstory, which is that the idea of the, of a linear life that you're going to have one home, one, you know, one job, one relationship, one spirituality, one source of happiness. Like this is how we were all raised and this is deader than it's ever been. And it's been replaced by what I call the nonlinear life, which is a life with many more twists and turns and ups and downs and an entirely different shape than we expect. Okay, so now this feeling that that these uh, your fellow Yale your, your Yale classmates had, um, and various people you interview in the book express uh, of well things being uh, their lives having turned out not like they expected they're they're in a period of greater flux than they might have anticipated, including often like tremendous sorrow. In it, there was a time when in in the history of kind of the literature that your book is part of. When, uh, that kind of feeling was, uh, was thought of as a, 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 an almost predictable phase at a certain part in, in life. And you might give it a name like the midlife crisis. Um, as you, as you write about in the book, the, the, the book Passages by Gail Sheehy kind of memorialized this idea and, and more broadly the idea that there, there is this, you know, you're going through your 20s, you got your 20s crisis, your 30s, whatever, however she put it, I didn't read the book. But that that's an idea, that would be a linear approach to human problems, right? Well, this is the problem for this stage of life. And I think you're saying two things. First of all, she wasn't quite right in the first place, even back then, right? You're, you're, you're saying that, but you're also saying that she's become even less right because the, the texture uh, and kind of logic of life has changed. 
So for me, okay, so let's geek out on the on, on the science and the history, right? Because this is something that that we share, and I'm thinking about your you know book on the history of God right now. I mean, I which goes way back in way back in time and talks about this idea, right? So um, what I want to say is that for me the kind of intellectual underpinning. I felt like one of these days I like, I pulled a book off a shelf and the bookcase opened and I was in a different room that I didn't know was there. Right. I, you know, you, you, you may have one of those, those shelves behind you. Apparently Dan Brown has one of those <laughs> bookshelves in his castle uh, or the castle now that his wife has in, in France or whatever. But for me, I felt like I walked into a room that I had never been in and it startled me. And And what was in that room was an idea that, Every culture kind of looks at the world a certain way. Maybe this is in and of itself not surprising, but that the way we look at the world affects how we look at our life and that every culture kind of has a paradigmatic life course that we are expected to follow. Okay, so that in the ancient world, when there was no linear time, they thought life followed the seasons to every season, turn, 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 because that's how they looked at life. And in the Middle Ages, and as you know, in my in, in the book, I actually found a whole series of graphic representation of this, which blew my mind. In the middle, you know, the Bible introduces in the West the idea of linear time. And then if you look in the Middle Ages, that is where a whole series of ideas, again, that we just assume have always been there, that life is in stages and that we are actors, right? This is all has to do with the middle class in Europe in the in the you know 16th and 17th centuries, theater became important, Shakespeare's the stages of man, all of these things. And if you, they have these graphic representations that life is a staircase up to middle age, at which point we peak and then we decline. Okay. Now that is completely different from how those of us who were raised in the 20th century, we were taught that the middle age was a trough and then it was up, but this is how people looked at it. And so essentially what I sort of stumbled onto was this notion that how we were taught in the 20th century is in fact a historical aberration. Okay, that since the birth of science, which and that corresponds to an industrial kind of factory based way of looking at the world, we were told that life proceeds in a series of linear stages. And if you look all across the history of psychology in the first hundred years, Piaget stages that a child goes through. Freud with the psychosexual development, Erickson with the eight stages of moral development. And Erickson says expressly, explicitly and expressly that this was based on the conveyor belt, right? That this was an industrial model. And this all reaches its peak in the 70s with Gail Sheehy, who writes passages which plagiarizes the idea of the midlife crisis from Roger Gould at UCLA and Dan Levinson at Yale. You don't use that word casually. She was actually sued. She was actually sued. She put this in New York Magazine. She credits Levinson. She doesn't credit Roger Gould, who sues her and wins. And she's a, you know, a poor single mom, you know, struggling writer or whatever it was at New York Magazine at the time. So she says, okay, I don't have any money. I'll give you 10% of the royalties and Which turns out to be a jillion dollars. This for, for, for our younger viewers and listeners, this was one of the biggest bestsellers of all time passages. 20 million copies. The Library of Congress declared it one of the 20 most influential books of the 20th century. It was enormous. And it, and what it says is we all do the same thing on our 20s, the same thing in our 30s, and that we all have a midlife crisis that must start by 39 and a half and will end by 45. It is so, and the, the subtitle of passages, the predictable crises of adult life. This all turns out to be bunk. 
You know, and again, I, I think it was bunk then. In fact, it was quite, quite soon debunked by a series of scholars in, in the 1980s who, who studied it, but it's completely irrelevant now because what's happened is, this is what I mean by geeking out on the science for a second. We now understand that the world through chaos theory, through complexity, through the internet and a kind of webbed way of understanding the world, we now know that there are periods of stability and instability, periods of periodicity and non-periodicity, periodicity. And that's how we look at the world, but what we haven't done and what, in effect, I'm attempting to do in Life is in the Transitions is say it's time to update how we look at the paradigmatic shape of our lives. Okay. Now, um, as you said, you do a lot of uh, research. You you interviewed the, over 200 people. Um, they You have a standard kind of format, interview format, which you replicate at the end of the book, and you're encouraging people to, to, to kind of submit their own stories, I know, readers. Um the uh fascinating stories, um I got I gotta say, in fact I, I it kind of lowered my self esteem. I, I thought like my life is really not very interesting. <laughs> These people have had interesting lives. I mean uh, I'm, I, I may be the last person leading a linear life, Bruce. I don't know. And even I found your book interesting, even though, even though, you know, I'm the, I'm the, perhaps the least likely given that linearity. But, um, they are fascinating stories. I mean, now how did you, how did you choose the people? I, I assume they came to your attention in different ways. So I had this idea. I was going to go off and talk to people. Now, who are the people I'm going to do? So I started with people that I knew. <laughs> and uh, I, I'd be shocked. Did it really? Did, did I not, in the course of this, ask you, as I asked everybody now, who do you know who's had an interesting uh, life story? Um, and I was a few months into And I have people, I mean, I have a two-time cancer survivor who climbed Mount Everest. I have the former leading uh, neo-Nazi in America who had a conversion and and, and uh, came out. I talked, you know, A quarter of my stories involve addiction of some kind. I have uh, Goldman Sachs partners whose children had incredibly uh, rare diseases. I have a guy who was a tenured theoretical physicist who taught at the School of Advanced International Studies not far from where you sit as we speak who left to to. to to devote himself full time to his YouTube comedy band Ninja Sex Party. I mean, the stories were amazing. And a couple of months into this, I say to my wife, I said, I think I can get 25 states. And this will tell you about my marriage. She said, get 50 or <laughs> shut up and turned and, and walked out of the room. So I, I became over time kind of more systematic to make sure once I realized I was onto something to make sure that I had all ages and all walks of life and all demographics and all states. And at the end of every conversation, I said, who do you know? It's an interesting story. And it soon kind of metastasized. And as is definitely happening to me, since the book is coming out, people are stepping forward and say, you should add, uh, you should add my story. And, and, but then I had this trough and I didn't know what to do with it. I had a thousand hours of interviews. Had six thousand pages of transcripts. It came to the shoulders of my adolescent uh, daughters at the time, and I decided to come up, with, you know, to sort of devise a methodology modeled on on uh, on uh, good to great and a process that Dan McAdams at, at at Northwestern, who has sort of pioneered this idea of life story interviews. By the way, we should say the midlife crisis. Dan Levinson at Yale in the seventies. 40 people, all in New Haven, all men. Okay, even the person who came up with the idea of the mid-life crisis, Elliot Jock, said he he didn't even talk to anybody. He only read 300 biographies, and they were 
of men and you said, I can't talk about women because menopause will throw everything off. Like that's how restrictive and limited the, the intellectual foundation for these ideas that are essentially universally accepted um, have been. And so I end up with all these stories and then we just started digging through them, trying to find patterns. And I think that the, now that gets us to kind of, you know, what happened was discovering this is, I didn't go into it interested in change or even interested in transitions, but that's quick, clearly what emerged quite quickly as the sort of defining human event in this life of haste and change. Okay. And so I guess to, to talk about your kind of model of change, maybe we should start at kind of what you might call the atomic level with the disruptors like, right? They're, they're like the, the smaller elements in your model. I mean, we can just say quickly, disruptors make for life quakes in your model life quakes are are bigger than any one disruptor is likely to be but talk about this uh business of disruptors once you start talking about it i think we'll all recognize uh the kind of thing you're talking about so the linear life is dead it's been replaced by the nonlinear life the atom yes the, the essential ingredient of the the nonlinear life is what i call a disruptor i've specifically chosen the word disruptor because it's value neutral uh and because they can be positive or negative. So a disruptor could be an accident. It could be uh, changing religions. It could be getting married. It could be becoming an empty nester. Uh, and what I found is that we go through three dozen of these in the course of our lives. That's one every 12 to 18 months. It's more often than some people see a dentist. And you know, most of these we get through relatively quickly. We are actually pretty good at change. But then what happens is that one in 10 of these, that's three to five times in our lives, we go through a massive change, which is, which I call a, a life quake. Um, again, they could be positive or negative, um, and voluntary or involuntary. And a life quake is sort of higher on the Richter scale of consequences and has aftershocks that last for years. And so I, to come up with these numbers, I did two things. I A, went through all of the, all of the, um, all of the interviews and I ended up with this 52 different types of disruptors. I call it the deck of disruptors in my book. And the last list that was very similar was done in the late sixties. Um, and what was it that it was different? I mean, that list only has one about religion and I had six or seven because people become more religious, less religious, change religions. I mean, as you know, half of Americans change faith in the course of our lives. Four in 10 of us are in interfaith religion. I'm excuse me, in an interfaith marriage. Also, none of the kind of contemporary flashpoints you know, domestic violence, me too, none of that, any of that stuff was on those old lists. Entrepreneurialism, I'm married to a woman who works in entrepreneurship, you know, starting an enterprise was not on the list. So the, the list has gotten bigger. Um, there's more of these changes because divorce, of course, has become much more common, non-traditional marriages, adoption, all these things have become much more common. And so I kind of, kind of husband a whole slew of data to show that the pace of pace of these changes is greater um, and the spread in our lives where we experience them is also wider. Okay. And a disruptor can be either something that happens to you or something you choose to make happen, right? Absolutely. A move is a disruptor. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about life quakes in particular, because with the life quakes, I actually dug in and analyzed them. So I did them on a graph. So voluntary or involuntary. So a voluntary life quake would be uh, leaving a bad marriage, deciding to get sober, changing jobs, moving. Um, an involuntary life quake would be 
having your spouse cheat on you or losing your job or having an accident and losing your legs, getting a diagnosis. So I did personal, I mean, I did voluntary and involuntary. 47% were voluntary. 53% were involuntary. You mentioned younger viewers. I don't know your demographics, but I was born in 1964. So I'm nominally at the tail end of the baby boom. And I looked, I was like, whoa, 47% of these life clinics were voluntary? Like, wow, we have impact on our lives. I had all these millennial coders and they were like, what? darn, like, you know, 53% are involuntary. They were, they were still under the delusion that they could control their lives. So I did personal and collective, I mean, voluntary and involuntary, and then I did personal and collective. So the largest category was personal and involuntary, an accident, uh, you know, you're, you're, you have a child with special needs, etc. The next was personal and voluntary, changing religions, moving. By the way, 61% of the people moved in my study in the course of their life transition. And I don't know about you, but 61% of the conversations I'm in today, people are talking about moving. But the collective ones were small. And this is this is kind of, now we get to the present moment <laughs> that you alluded to earlier. Um, By collective ones, you mean? collective A collective life quake would be 9-11. It would be a natural disaster. The things disaster. we all share, like a pandemic. Like, like a, exactly. Like a things recession. that happen to a bunch of us at the same time. So there's this line in my book were like, oh, had I done, and there was like only 8% were collective involuntary. And there's a line in my book that was like a throwaway line, <laughs> which is that had I done these conversations a century ago when there were two world wars and, and depression, there would have been many more collective involuntary life quakes. And, and I've been working on this for five years and lo and behold, the book appears at a moment when the entire planet is going through mm-hmm. a, I would say a collective involuntary life quake and the pandemic. But on top of that, we've now added a collective voluntary life quake, which is the protest movement and the kind of reckoning with, uh, you know, of centuries of racial uh, injustice. That's a personal voluntary life quake. And actually, in my own mind, I think that there's a I just written a piece about this in Time magazine. There's actually a connection, I think, between the two. Between the, between the fact that we were going through what, what, what one of the things that happened in these conversations that I had not read about in the literature of social change that's out there and life course is that these life quakes tend to clump together, mm-hmm. right? Just when, just when you lose your job, your, your, your daughter is found to have a anxiety disorder. Just when you're going to move, you wreck the car and your, your mother-in-law dies. So there is something about them that clumped. And I sort of, I and ultimately nicknamed this a pileup because it reminded me of the old black and white movies, right? Where the car stops and then boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. There's two car pileups and three car pileups. So what makes a pileup? I mean, some of it's obviously coincidental. It just happens. But I think a greater reason is that it's like our immune system is weakened somehow by a life quake. So mm-hmm. that's something that we might normally just get through and wouldn't institute or kind of trigger a big change triggers a big change. And that's what I think has happened in 2020, that we already have the sort of political life quake that we've all been in of Trump and sort of the instability that exists because of that, right? Witness how Trump led to to the Women's March, right? Mm-hmm. And then to Me Too and to a whole series of other changes that might may or may not have happened. You then have this pandemic. So already we're kind of, like the environment has been seeded for change. And then I think when the murder of George Floyd happens, 
it more easily uh, spilled over into the large movement because I think we already were in a climate. Oh, oh of- definitely. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, even as we talk, I'm sitting here thinking I've been through more earthquakes than I realized. Um, Lifequakes, maybe. maybe uh, I mean, lifequakes, but- yeah. Um, yeah, so, I- so, let's ask you, so give me a lifequake in my life. Well, give, me, give me a be- a period where you went through a lot of Well, change. I mean, in general, I have to admit, narrative. in general, I have to admit, I feel kind of short on lifequakes. Uh, that's what I meant when I said maybe my life's been more linear than many. Um, I feel like I'd, I'd like to have one now. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like I need one now. <laughs> yes, right. That, which is a different matter. And maybe uh, to extend the metaphor, it's like tectonic plates have been moving or something and you feel you, you, you need one, but that's a different thing. What, what, what I'm, what, what I was just alluding to is that, you know, now that you mention it, Trump was a life quake for me and, and was. I, I mean, because like three of my, uh, three of my four siblings voted for Trump. It changed our family relations. Mm-hmm. It meant we can't talk politics at family reunions. It, it, and, and not, I mean, and, and that's just like one fifteenth of the significance to me of Trump having been elected. Uh, I mean, he was a, uh, I'm just thinking this now, but he, he, uh, represents defiance of a, a whole worldview I outlined in a whole book I wrote, you know? And, and I mean, so, so I, I, even, even after reading your book, I hadn't thought, well, Trump was a life quake for me, but he kind of was. The pandemic was in a different way. And, and there it's just interacted with my situation, where I am, where I live, yes. uh, how, how I feel about risk compared to other members of my family. It gets, I don't know if you've had this whole issue, but it gets, it can get yes, complicated. We're trying to, we're trying to have a, our annual kind of family get together and right. we spent weeks and I was like, finally, like everyone's going to have to put their, push their rules to the center of the table and we're right. going to have to horse trade to see if we can do this. But you've also, you know, in your life, what I found is that, is that non, you know, nonlinear does not mean constant nonlinearity, right? It means periods right. of stability and stuff. And even people who have had, like, say in your case, um, a long, stable relationship, right? And a con- continual connection with your children have had break, you know, disruption or life quakes in other areas. You've had in the five, as you know, the five kind of big storylines that I talk about in my book are love, work, body, um, identity, and beliefs, okay? So you've had, a, you've certainly had work life quakes, okay? Let's just say you've not had love quakes and not had a, you've not had a, physical uh, disruption like cancer or loss of limbs that at least that I'm aware, but you've had beliefs. You've had a number of massive changes in beliefs uh, in the course of your life. In the course of my life. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I I think partly it has to do, I guess, with whether you're inclined to frame these things as, as, as changes, you know, we're going to get to the question of story. What is the story you tell about yourself? And maybe part of what we're saying is, uh, I tell the story about myself that I'm just the kind of person who deals with change. I don't, I don't, I don't make a big deal of it. It's like my father was just this kind of pretty stoic person. And I, I think I kind of admired that. And, and, you know, he just dealt with whatever came and he didn't complain a lot. And, and, uh, so come to think of it, maybe part of my story is that I'm not the kind of person to call a, a life quake a life quake, you know? <laughs> well, I think that now, so now we, now we get to something interesting. Okay. Which is, so let me just, let's just pause a little bit on, so 
two things that's put on the table here. One, I want to pause a little bit and talk a little bit about the story that you tell yourself, because that is a big underpinning of what I'm talking about here. But I want to put a put a flag in, and I want to come back in a second to something also that I think that you would be interesting on, which is this idea that there is a generational change in, in our understanding and acceptance of nonlinearity. So that there's a difference between people of your generation and your children's generation. Okay. And, and I, I want to hear you on this topic because there definitely I have, is. Yes. Uh, because I have had conversations with you about your children and I have, and I understand that you look at them trying to understand why it is that your linear construct for storytelling is not the way that they appear to be telling uh, their story. So let's come back to that and let's talk a little bit about storytelling. So there has been. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll geek out on it first. Well, before we geek out, let me pop out on it a second. So let me just say, stop for a second, anybody listening or watching, and listen to that story that's going on in your head. It's the story of where you came from and what's important to you. It's a story of where you're going. Like if you got a call right now that you had to rush to the hospital because a loved one was there, like what is the story that would be going on in your head? How are you adjusting that story right now as we go through this pandemic? That story is the story of your life. And one thing we've learned in psychology, it was a radical idea in the, in the early 1980s when Jerome Bruner and Dan McAdams and a series of of academics and different disciplines started saying that that story is central to who we are. Uh, you know, Oliver Sacks later kind of helped popularize this. Now we know because of neuroscience, it's not just part of who we are. It is who we are in a fundamental way. Like life is the story that you tell yourself. We know that our brains are wired to process in story. Um, we think in story. Other people think of us in story, the interaction in the story. So that story Life is a narrative. Life is a narrative um, opportunity and a, and a narrative experience in a fundamental way. Now, the problem that we have—I mentioned narrative adolescence earlier. That's when we begin to think of our lives as a story. But what happens is because you know, almost like the children do this first, we think of our lives as as superheroes think of their lives, right? Or as fairy tales in some way. There's there's a hero and there's a happy ending. And what we forget is that it's the wolf that makes the story. And that our lives are going to be interrupted by a wolf, a dragon, an ogre, a downsizing, or tornado, a death, a pandemic. And that, the, that there is no story without conflict because there's nothing to tell. And that the story is fundamentally about how we get through the conflict and resolve the conflict uh, in some way. And so one way of thinking of these life quakes is as Conflicts in our lives. They are essentially giant wolves that we, that we run into in, in the forest. This is not how we talk about our lives, but this is fundamentally what's going on, uh, in our lives. And I think that when you, and so when, and therefore a, I, I like this phrase that a sociologist invented in the eighties named Robert Zimmerman. I'm trying to kind of revive, which is that a life quake is an autobiographical occasion, right? So an autobiographical occasion and the original definition of it was when you go to the doctor and you give your medical history, right? Or you go on a first date or a job interview is an autobiographical occasion. I think this can be broadened. This phrase should be repopularized and it should, this is an autobiographical occasion. We're going through a pandemic. How is each of us going to respond? How is our life going to change? You know, because it's going to affect our relationships our spirituality, our beliefs, where we live, what we do, how we care for our children, our parents, all, somebody is going to be affected by 
everybody's going to be affected by one of those. And most of us are going to be affected by more than one. And therefore, this is an autobiographical occasion when we all are rethinking about our life story uh, right now. So that's the narrative part. And I guess I should let you respond before I then get to the generational gap issue. Well, uh, I mean, you mean respond in the sense of, uh, I, I, I mean, we should say that uh, your, your model has, is, is basically about kind of reconstructing a story, right? At, in response to a life quake, right? Uh, reauthoring your, your story in a way, in a way that makes sense. I mean, I was thinking, uh, just as an aside, I mean, in thinking about how I respond to the pandemic, I, 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 I guess I take pride in kind of my rationality. I'm, I'm not over, I'm trying to not overreact and, and just assess the risk rationally, which mm-hmm. I won't get further into my domestic situation here, but that, just can, my approach is not universally shared. Uh, no, I don't mean to call anyone in my household irrational. I, I totally don't. I mean that. Uh, I, uh, and I will leave it there. But, um, the, uh, but, but, um, th- maybe that's, that's why you've had a long marriage because, what? because maybe I always that's leave why it you've there. had a long linear relationship <laughs> because, uh, because always you, leave you have different there. approaches. Uh, yeah. No, oh, certainly there's, there's, uh, comp- complementarity is, is, uh, is bliss. Yes. The, nice, um, it's a nice Catholic but, term. Uh, but, but, um, but, but, Take this wherever you want. I mean, this is your, your, your model is, uh, yeah. so that's just an aside. When that, that's what that triggered when you, when you started talking about how we all, a pandemic is an opportunity to tell ourselves, um, a story. I mean, you could choose it as a time to reauthor your story and say, you know, I've always been kind of risk averse. I'm going to go crazy, which actually might be crazy in this case, but, uh, but, but a life quake is an opportunity to tell a new story. Um, now the, the kinds of life quakes you deal with in the book are times when it's deeply in your interest to come right. up with a story because they are life quakes that are causing very serious trouble. So you've, re- re- you've alluded to this model thing a couple of times. So let me just sort of try to explain that to people who are, you know, coming into this conversation. So, um, one interesting back to kind of things that I learned that surprised me, which is that we haven't there ha, transitions were something that were in favor in the 20th century, and that language has grown has gone out of favor. And so I'm trying to return to this. The idea of a life transition was actually invented, as you know, from life is in a transition. A, a, by the way, in and of itself, a William James expression from a century ago. So the idea that life has these regular transitions was in, invented by a German anthropologist named Arnold van Gennep uh, in, in the first decade of the 20th century. He invented the phrase rites of passage, which his translator now says should be rites of transition. And he talked about these liminal moments in our lives. And the way he talked about it is that a life transition involves kind of three activities, leaving one room, he, he said, walking down a hallway and entering into another room. And that model, insofar as people wrote about this in the 20th century, was revived by a guy named Victor Turner in the 60s, and then in the 1970s by an English professor named William Bridges, who wrote what is essentially the last big book on life transitions in 1979. 
And they all said that there were these three phases and that more important, because this is the linear age at that time, you must do them in order. First, you must say goodbye to the old room, you know, the old you, then you go through this betwixt and between, and then you must enter the new room. Like, by the way, the five stages of grief, like the another linear construct that you have to do them in order. So I asked everybody kind of micro steps, like the biggest emotion they struggled with, you know, what advice from friends was most valuable and, you know, what kind of stages they went through and in what order. And kind of a, a signature finding of this is that this linear model of life transitions is just wrong. Um, there are three phases, which I call the long goodbye, where you say goodbye to the old you the messy middle where you shed certain habits and create new habits and the new beginning where you unveil your new self. And finally, as you said, update your life story, but we do not do them in order. In fact, everybody is good at one of the phases. I call it your transition superpower and bad at one of them. And we tend to gravitate to the phase we're good at. So I, you know, some people are really bad at saying goodbye because they're people pleasers. They don't want to, you know, induce conflict and they, they're just comfortable and they stay in a bad marriage too long or drinking too long or in a job they should leave. But I talked to a woman, Nina Collins, who lost her mother when she was 19 and she's since had three marriages and twice as many jobs. And she said, I'm good at goodbye. I like, I underattach to things. Um, and so I get stuck in the middle. Other people don't get stuck in the middle. I talked to a guy named um, Rob Adams, a management consultant from the Midwest who was hired to run the Simon Pierce Glass Company in Vermont, a family-run company. He goes up there. He starts a month after the Great Recession. Sales drop by a third in the first quarter. He should have gone, and but it took him a you know a year before the family asked him to leave. And he's like, "I like being a mentor. I was bad at saying goodbye, but once I got to the middle, like I'm a consultant. I made lists. I'm very rational." And he came up with a plan and moved the family to Africa to run a nonprofit. Even some people are bad at the new beginning, which you would think we would all enjoy. I talked to this woman. I love this story, Lisa Ludovici. She was born in uh, Pittsburgh, a broken family. Her mother was not particularly interested in being her mom. Uh, She went to college at at Penn State. Mother didn't even come to her graduation. Uh, She lived in her car for a while. She was homeless. She went to work, uh, speaking of Washington, she went to work at the new startup America Online, became, you know, over 20 reorgs, became a massive um, uh, internet ad executive, but she had three migraines a week since she was three. And one day she logs onto a, uh, a conference call. People don't know she's there. They're talking about how sour she is. She goes home, combs through her Amex bills, walks in the next day, quits on the spot. Doesn't go out to eat, stop shopping, uh, cuts her cable. She's watching local access TV, sees somebody who tries to help people and says, I'm going to become a life coach. Goes to life coach school in Santa Fe has her head on the table on day one. The teacher says, what's wrong? She says, I'm having a migraine. Don't worry. I have three a week. It's not a big deal. Teacher says, come with me. Puts her in a chair in her office, hypnotizes her. She's never had another migraine. Hmm. She's now America's leading medical hypnotist, uh, works with VA veterans. And she said, even with all the success, she was too scared to update her LinkedIn profile because her friends would think it was weird. So she was bad at leaving, but she was not, but she was even worse at the new beginning because she was too embarrassed by this change that she went through. So everybody's good at it. One thing I try to do in the book is walk people through identifying which one you're good at and bad at so you can start with one that you're good at and uh, build from there. Hmm. Okay. So, um, and this is, I'm sorry, just to, just to button this up. 
this this idea of the structure and the various tools that I uh, articulate that people use is the first new model for life transitions in 40 years. So that was an interesting thing that people haven't been talking about, which I've been believing for years we should revise, revive. And now obviously it's coming um, at this, at this moment when we all, uh, when we all need it. But just to, to, to the last point I'll make is that the life quake that you go through back to your pandemic analogy, and maybe even your personal situation, which you wanted to talk about is the life quake can be voluntary or involuntary but the life transition that comes out of it must be voluntary. You have to lean in and choose to go through the steps and and, and utilize the tools in order to get to get um, to get through it and to the turn it into the renewal and period of growth that it has the potential to be. Okay, um, talk just a little about your uh, little ABC mnemonic yeah. device and how those three things, the A, the B, and the C, relate to all of this. So if you go back a century ago, most of our meaning, most of what gave us identity and meaning uh, were given to us. Most people had to live where their parents wanted them to live, do what their parents wanted them to do, uh, marry who their parents wanted them to marry, believe what their parents wanted them to believe. One of the massive, uh, epical, we still don't talk about it enough, <laughs> Uh, consequences of the 20th century is that most of that has been overthrown. <laughs> you can live where you want to live and believe what you want to believe and do what you want to do. Obviously women have, you know, market more freedom than they had in the past. We, you can now, even in the last few years, we've learned you can change your body and your sexuality that, in ways that we didn't even think was possible. Marry who you want to marry. I mean, the pace of this change is remarkable. The upside is you get to write your own story, right? You can live the life you want to live. The downside is, is it's overwhelming. Yeah. For a lot, if not most people, like we get writers. And I think, I think millennials are really confronting. I, I think a lot of millennials are really yes. grappling with the relative lack of structure that life has. That's partly a result of the economy they find themselves in, the technological world they find themselves in. I think it's also. A product of the fact of the way we raise them. I mean, we, we, you know, uh, as you, you as in effect, you've just, you, you've just said, what's that? I mean, you could do, you can be whatever you want to be. And that's just too many choices. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it was, it was almost part of our child rearing religion that I, I mean, different parents are different. Uh, and, and I think in my case, I had the, the odd pair of parents who in a certain sense uh, weren't all that hands-on or directive and maybe to some extent I'm following in their footsteps. Uh, but, and, and I say well, odd for that generation. Your parents were not hands-on or you they and your weren't, wife? They weren't. I just don't recall a lot of explicit, uh, guidance. I mean, I think they were both really good role models and they kind of left it at that. I, I don't, and, and they don't. Now my father would have liked me to apply to West Point. Um, you know, wow. uh, uh, talking right. Exactly. You know me well enough to know what it is. That would have been, (laughs) he did know that that required taking orders. (laughs) Uh, well, you've listed one of about 37 problems with that scenario. Yes. Um, but anyway, uh, my, my, um, they didn't, they didn't like, they, like, they never told me to do my homework. They never, you know, I just don't remember a lot of that. 
stuff or steering me toward great achievement. I mean, they weren't even that achievement oriented. I mean, like they were like disappointed that I was going to go to Princeton because it wasn't in Texas. Um, okay. So now we're getting to this thing that, that I want you, I want to hear you on this topic. Okay. Because an undeniable reality of sitting when I first started this project, I thought, Oh, I should talk to people 40 plus because they've been beaten around by life a little bit. Right. Mm-hmm. And my wife, Linda, who I've alluded to her a few times, Linda Rotenberg, who started and runs an organization called Endeavor that supports entrepreneurs in 40 countries. And she's got more or less 500 millennials working for her around the world. She's like, you know, you're wrong. Like millennials also have a life story. And so you should talk to them. And she was right. And I was wrong. And good thing she didn't walk in when I said that because she would uh, remind me of it um, all the time. But one of the clear things was that, so let's just say that you, so you're a boomer and let's assume that therefore your, your parents were either greatest or silent greatest. generation or whatever. What? Greatest? Yeah. Right. My father was in world war two. Yeah. Okay, fine. So what we're talking about is that boomers, even though we're still haunted by the ghost of linearity. Okay. that w- We got more of this change than our parents did, you know, for sure. Xers more than boomers understand it and millennials more than Xers. Mm-hmm. So that leads to this kind of transition gap that a lot of parents that I talk to in their 60s are looking at their children in their 20s and early 30s and saying, wait a minute, you are having a child before you get married, right? Or you're leaving one job without having the next job, or Mm -hmm. you're moving to a city. not Like they are looking at their parents, their children, and they're saying, wait a minute, you're making, you're doing all this zigzagging and it seems nonlinear, changing careers in the middle in the way that we never would have at 28 or 32, or would have seemed much more wrenching to us and to our parents. That is that is the norm. Okay. So this now allows me to say that this, so I want to then go back to the ABCs of meaning, but is that what you're experiencing with your children? Like they're just doing these things and they're zigging and zagging at a much quicker pace than there's you would have? A, there's some of that. And I've also heard it from other millennials. Like when I was teaching uh, briefly at uh, Union Theological Seminary, uh, well, one of, one of the things was just like, and, and this is something I think you and I probably feel too, is like, you're never done. It's like, you know, there's always something more you could be doing mm. at any time of day in furtherance of your work or your career. You know, my father, you know, uh, there are probably some people so young, they don't know where the term inbox comes from. <laughs> okay, so my father on his desk, he was an army officer, he had a stack of two boxes big enough to to hold documents. There was an inbox and an outbox. And he would, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. like something like what you can see on your desk. And, and... And they were labeled inbox in and out. And, and, uh, every morning he'd come in and, and, and his secretary would have put a bunch of stuff in the inbox. And he said he would not go home until he had taken every document in the inbox and put it in the outbox. And then he was done and he would come home and have a scotch and yes. watch Walter Cronkite. Well, my, my, my parents, I grew up with cocktail hour, you know, five mm-hmm. o'clock mm-hmm. in Savannah, Georgia. My same thing. My dad, well, it's not just that, that he wouldn't go home until it was empty. It's that he would go home when it was empty. <laughs> so <laughs> that's even better. <laughs> that's even a harder trick for us to do today because it's never empty. Uh, right. B- because it's going to fill up later. Yeah. My dad would come home and have a drink. And it was like, you know, cocktail hour for my dad and my mom so that we could have family dinner at six o'clock because that was the time devoted uh, to, to the children. Mm-hmm. Okay. So back to my answer to your question. So 
the pace of change. Okay. The linear life is dead. <laughs> it's been mm-hmm. replaced by the nonlinear life. There are a host of advantages that we never want to go back. We certainly don't. I mean, you should be able, like if you had stayed in the Ozarks or Texas or, you know, or South Georgia or wherever, you know, you or I were growing up or anybody else listening to us and you had non-traditional sexuality, that would have been hard. Or you wanted a non-traditional career choice that would have been much hard. You would have been much more trapped in your family lineage and in the expectations of you. So there are so many advantages, but there also are downsides, which is the psychic burden of having to tell your own story and to build your own identity. So I tried mm-hmm. to figure out what is it that people, what are the gears that people use? And so what I identified in this whole coding is what I have come to call the ABCs of meaning. Okay. So the A is agency. That's what you do, what you make, what you create, your work life, your self life. Okay. That's your, your A. The B is belonging. That's your relationships, your community, your loved ones, your family, your friends, your religious community, your colleagues, whatever it might be. And the C is your cause. You're calling something higher than yourself. Okay. And the, and the narrative, in the, in the narrative kind of framework of this book, I call this your me story, your we story, and your the story. Okay. And so we have these and the, it turns out people, when you ask them, as I did, the shape of, you know, when, tell me the shape of your life, like how you think of your life. Agency first people tend to come up with a line. <laughs> that's something that's up or down, a winding river, a road, a mountain, a, a stock market. They tend to come up with a line. That's what I would have done. If I asked you, my guess is almost assuredly, what shape is your life, Bob? You would have given me a line. I'm almost. Yeah, yeah it would be a line. Guarantee it. But everybody doesn't do it. In fact, I learned this. I have this guy, Michelangelo, I talk about in my book, who actually cuts my hair. And I was sitting there one day and I was like, so Michael, what's the shape of your life? And he's had a heart. I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm asking you like the trajectory of a life. It's a heart. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're not hearing me. Let me communicate. I want to know like how your life has moved through time. And he said, no, you're not hearing me. Hot shot. Like I'm telling you that the ups and downs of my professional life is not the dominant shape of my life. It's a heart. The relationships are more important than my own success. And that was when I realized, whoa, I'm like really misunderstanding this. Like I talked to this woman, Michelle Swain, who also grew up in a broken family, married her high school sweetheart, who was a preacher. He was the dominant. She was sort of a broken person. She became anorexic in her 20s. She was down to eating half an apple a day. And she would run like, you know, miles, 10, 15 miles a day. And they were unable to get a pregnant, as happens to some anorexic uh, uh, people. And one day she slips on the ice has an accident, ends up in the hospital. She has a vision from God who comes to her and says, I did this to you on purpose. Her husband walks in the next day. I was visited by God. He said he did this to you on purpose. She changed her life and they adopted 11 children from eight refugee countries around the world. And she says to me that the shape of her life is a dented minivan. So the people who tend to be relationship oriented come up with a shape that contains people, a house, a heart, a dented minivan. And the cause people tend to have an object. My wife who works with entrepreneurs, she's like the shape of her life is a light bulb. She helps other people make their ideas come true, right? Boxing gloves, you know, an infinity symbol, lettuce for plant-based medicine or whatever it might be. And people, so I'm an ABC. So I'm agency first, belonging second, and then cause. My wife is a CAB. She's cause first, agency belonging. So what's your order? I mean, I got to say, I think in my case, C rivals A. You had me pegged for A, but as you know, 
Yes. I am plagued with this kind of sense of mission that yes. apparently grows out of my Southern Baptist outbringing or something that it's too late for me to change. <laughs> um, but, um, but certainly belonging would be, I'm third. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not nearly as, I don't think I'm as, as, uh, proactively social as you are by a long shot or as communal or anything else. I would think, I would think for you, Belonging rivals, eh? I would think for you, but maybe I'm wrong. I, um, uh, in fact, you can hear the relationships out, you know, outside my um, uh, yeah. door here. Um, Wait, did you say I, you're? Did you say you're ABC or ACB? I'm ABC. Right. Okay. I'm agency first. I'm yeah. very, I'm very family and friend, yep. and yep. Uh, um, and then I'm uh, a cause as a distant a third for me. But I, my guess is, I don't know your wife well, but my guess is she's going to be belonging first. Yes, by a long shot. Yeah. yeah. So here we go, this interesting sort of compatibility. But here's now the point that, that we're getting to all this. Everybody has an order. But what happens in a life quake is that we shape shift, is that we reimagine and recalibrate and rebalance the ABC. So I think of the ABCs of meaning as like kind of Lady Liberty with three scales instead of instead of one, uh, so, excuse me, instead of two, and that we reweight them in these moments. And that's where we are right now. Like everybody listening to us either lay awake last night or, you know, got up this morning with a cup of coffee and is wondering like, do I have a job? If I have a job, is it the right job? Do I need to leave my job to take care of my children or aging parents? Do I have a medical problem? Do I want to move? You know, do I want to, as I said, get sober? Do I want to make a change in my life? Am I the person that I want to be? And that is what happens in times like this. We kind of rebalance. Maybe we've been working too hard and we want to spend more time with our loved ones. Maybe we've been a parent, a primary parent, and, and we're an empty nester now and we want to give back. Maybe we've been giving back and we burn out and we want to do something for ourselves. So one of the things that's going on right now in the world is that we all are kind of revisiting the balance of power in the ABCs of meaning. Okay. Um, so, you know, I want to, I want to go back to something we just touched on and, and use it to, to talk more about stories. I, I said that, um, you know, millennials have told me they have this feeling that there's always something more they could be doing. There's the, the workday is never over. That may not sound so centrally related to what we're talking about, but it, it is related to that is, is the amount of opportunity they have. Yeah. I, I mean, in other words, they could go online and be doing any number of things at any, at, at, at any point. They could be making a contact that will allow them to move into a different, um, kind of work. They could be, you know, uh, learning stuff that uh, will be valuable. They could be, uh, on Tinder meeting somebody that will, uh, lead to their leaving their current mate. They could be doing all kinds of things, and one of the things that they're spending a lot of time doing, whether they think about it or not, is advertising their story, constructing their story. And 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 at the end of the book, you emphasize that that's not the same as the kind of storytelling you think we need to do more of, right? So let me just um, uh, unpack that for a second. So yes, I think that the abundance of choice now Again, I, I want to kind of use the frame I used earlier to say that there are many, many, many more advantages to this than there are disadvantages to this. I mean, in, in family, I, you know, I've written a lot about family and 
my book, Secrets of Happy Families. I wrote a column in the New York Times for a decade about contemporary families. And one just wonderful thing about contemporary families is that the, the that there has been a change. You have now women outside the home, <laughs> three quarters of women working outside the home, um, and which is, we talk about a lot, but there's this other change, which is that men are much more involved in the parenting space than they've ever been before. And that would, and, and a consequence of that is that the membrane that divided work from family is much more porous than it's ever been. And those holes have, be, have been blown open by the pandemic, which is also going to be great because kind of work-life balance issues, which were previously kind of largely gendered in the sense that mostly women worried about them. Now men are going to worry about them, which is going to hasten the change um, that we all need. And the reason that's relevant to what you just said is that in this world where what was formerly the work day and formerly the family day that we all, we, we remain overly romanticized that we, when we grew up, an advantage of that is that a dad can go coach little league. A mom can check in with her kids in the middle of the day. Then they can go home and be involved in the sort of, you know, the, 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 what I call the twin nuclear winters of family life, which is the hour after everybody wakes up in the morning and the hour before everyone goes to bed. And then they can go and log on and do work at nine o'clock that they might have previously been only able to do at four o'clock. So again, that is a, a, an advantage of this nonlinearity that the rigidity of the workday and the rigidity of the family time has been blown open so that we can time shift. And so that's an advantage, by the way, that millennials are soon going to experience. Remember now the tip of the millennials is hitting 40 and 90 plus percentage of the children in the world are now born to a millennial mom. So actually that breakup, you know, one thing about millennials is they don't even like the term mom and dad anymore. It's like co-parent because they're, they're ungendering a lot of this. And that's really great. The problem is, is that you need some boundaries and, and that you need some structure. And that relates to then this point you just made, which is the storytelling point, right? Which, which is you would think, Storytelling is everywhere because when you and I grew up, we grew up in places where, and we grew up in a country where a small number of people had a microphone and the rest of us had to listen. Mm -hmm. You and I left those places and managed to find our way through luck and good fortune and, and, and friendship and, and a whole source of other things that happened to us in our lives. We went out and we grabbed the microphone. And you and I have both been privileged to have, you know, a microphone for a long period of time. We now live in a we now live in a multi microphone world. Everybody's got a microphone, right? I mean, in a way, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of my life quakes was actually having the microphone not quite taken away, right. but you know, I mean, when we like, I came up, it was it was work to get to a point. Yes. Where you were like having, you know, writing cover stories for time and the Atlantic and being well paid and there weren't many people and it was kind of like a club and you would, you you felt you had worked to get there. And of course you had had privilege of many kinds. There's no doubt about that. But anyway, you were there and it wasn't that like rivals, young rivals had to work really hard to unseat you. Right. (laughs) And so, and so then just as I at least, uh, you're younger than I am, get to an age where you're, you're, you might start feeling a little vulnerable anyway, kind of middle age, late middle age, even if the world had stayed the same. Suddenly, yes. it's a lot easier for people to grab microphones. The internet is here. And, and, and I, and I realized while reading your book, that has been, you know, lifequake doesn't come to mind because it happened so gradually. It was more like a shifting of the tectonic plates that does, in fact, 
add up to a life quake. But anyway, that was enough about me. Take, go ahead and well, take no, the I conversation. To me too. I mean, the way I talk about it is, you know, my metaphor for this is I scraped and clawed and got myself to the top of the mountain only to have the mountain melt underneath me. Right. You know, is that if you, if you went back 10 years and your professional life and my professional life, you know, we both had what you might call tenure at that time. Like we had gotten there and we were not going to, and we were going to have the opportunity. That is not true anymore. And that is what I'm saying that we live in a multi-microphone world where everybody can tell their story, which again is awesome and has many more benefits <laughs> than downsides, but it has downsides, not least of which we have to decide at all times what story we want to tell. You talk to young parents, you talk to millennial parents. I did a piece about this in the New York Times, so I, I was I spent a long time digging into this. Uh, I coined this group of people perennials, right, because they're this portmanteau between parents and millennials, and they have to make a decision. Do they want to be tell a story about their children that the children are like, say, Beyonce's children in beautiful suits, you know, surrounded by flowers and, you know, tap dancing on the table, well lit with, you know, ring lighting and uh, their hair and makeup done? Or do they want to say to their kids pooping in the bath? And that actually is something of a burden on a young parent (laughs) that we never had, which is what sort of story? So we think that we're telling stories all the time. And to a certain extent, we are. But yes, to your point at the end, there is a story that we're not telling, which is the story of the story of our lives and this much larger scope. I'm I'm just struck in this conversation. I'm really struck, and I want to try to think about it. I'm struck in this conversation that you've said four or five times, I did not realize until I read your book that that was a life quake or that, uh, that that was a meaningful transition in my life. Because that what I'm hearing when you say that, what I'm feeling besides gratitude that you actually read my book, but what I'm feeling when you're, when I'm hearing is this is what initially when I pulled that book off my shelf and I, and there were the library opened up and I was in a different room was like, we don't talk about this. We don't talk about the course of our lives and we do not talk about our lives as a story. And we certainly don't talk about our lives as something that we're going to have three to five life quakes in it, that the average length of time as I found is five years, three to five, they take four, five, six years. That's 25 years. That's half of our adult lives that we are in transition and we've lost this language. And maybe you're good at navigating it, but most of us aren't. And therefore we need to refocus attention on this thing that we haven't focused on in 50 years, which is understanding that our lives have a kind of shape and that we are actors in creating that shape and tellers in telling our own life story. Yeah. Um, so what would you, uh, what would you recommend? And I think you would say that, look, even if you don't think of yourself, I mean, as we've said, you, you say that if you're going, uh, through a life quake and, and to appreciate the diversity of available life quakes, people just need to read the book. There's a lot of different people going through a lot of different kinds of change, but even assuming that upon reflection, you still don't think you qualify as going through a life, uh, a life quake, I think you would say it's still a healthy thing to think about your story, to, 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 to tell your story, talk about your story. So what would you recommend that people kind of concretely do? Should they like grab somebody off the street and say, listen to my story? Should they, what, 
what, what you, you know, you're, you're suggesting that um, Twitter isn't enough. Facebook isn't enough. And of course, just to drill down on that a little, and 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 the plight of millennials and and the plight of the rest of us in a way is like the weird thing about that is you realize you're telling your story you realize you're constructing yeah. a story you're getting feedback from all these people who really don't know you they they are responding to just one little thing reflecting on who you are and the feedback may be suddenly massive so that's like a really unnatural environment in which to, to tell yeah. a story but but anyway with that is uh with that as preamble, what would you say about what would you well, advise? Just a couple of things. I want to pick up on something you said, Singer, which even if you don't think you're in a lifequake. So now we are in a situation where this book has been published. Here it is. Life is in the transitions. In the middle of a lifequake. And so now I'm getting feedback, right? This book just was in the top 20 of Amazon. It's not the biggest first week I've had in 30 years of writing books. Um, and... Um, There was an interesting wrinkle here, right? Which is that a lot of people buying it are in a life quake, as I said. But it turns out maybe even a bigger market for this book is someone who has a loved one who's going through a life quake and they feel, you know, frozen or inept or unclear what to do. And they're co-piloting somebody through it. And then they are, um, they're looking for something to say. So, um, I, I want to, I, I want to, You've asked two questions. So I want to answer, first of all, what, what to do if you're in a life quake and you're not sure what to do, and then how to narrativize that experience. And so the first thing I want to say, like you sent me an email when we were setting this up. I hope I'm not violating a privacy, but I know your life is public to your fan base out there, Bob. More, more than they would like, assuming that there <laughs> even is a fan base. Um, you're like, help me, you know, I, I want to know what I'm still doing in my life, you know, my own life transition right now in my career. And I want to say, I want to echo what I said earlier. When you go into a life quake, you feel one of two things. You either feel chaotic and out of control, like you want to do seven thing, things at once because you're Mr. Fix-It or Mr. or Mrs. Efficiency. And, you know, you're the, you're the COO of your own life and you're going to get through it. Or you feel inert, kind of like you're in the fetal position on your bed and there's nothing you can do and no one's ever been through this. Um, Look at enough of them, as I have done, and certain patterns begin to appear. And I want to reiterate that the life quake might be voluntary or involuntary, but the life transition needs to be voluntary. You have to say, okay, now that I've absorbed it, I've absorbed the shock, I want to do something about it, and now I'm going to focus on X or Y or Z. That alone is a, is a huge initial step. And then, certainly this book, I have plenty of concrete tips of identify your feelings and use rituals and, and, and shed certain habits and turn to creativity and, you know, unveil your new self and all of these different uh, things, which I didn't make up. I just listened to people and I tabulated them and then I'm giving them to you because don't listen to me. Just listen to them. You're going to find some of these are not going to be relevant. You may not have be a, you know, an army veteran who had his face shut off in the Taliban, um, or a woman who was in an arranged marriage at 14 in an Orthodox Jewish community whose husband beat her every night for, for, for 20 years. But you're going to find in their examples things that are relevant to you. But to the larger question, 
of the story of your life. There are big things you can do. You know, I have, you go to brucefiho.com, I have this way you can do a storytelling project with an aging parent, like I did with my dad. I've picked the top 52 questions and I'll email them to you every week. I do have in the back of the book the template that I use, tell me the story of your life, high points, low points, and all the various questions. But I think that the answer to this question, Bob, is something that you learned from writing the many books that you've written, and I've learned from writing the many books I've written, which is that we're not writing books. You know, I say to first-time writers, it's like the – I think of writing as being uh, like you're in the woods and you come upon a – you come upon a wolf, ironically enough, and you all you have is an is a bow and an arrow and a quiver, and you're halfway through a paragraph, and you're stuck, like you don't know how to get out of this paragraph. Every arrow in your quiver is a tool to write yourself out of that paragraph, and that your job as a writer is to put as many arrows in your quiver as you can. So that when you're halfway through a paragraph and you're stuck, you've got as many weapons as possible to get yourself out of. And that's by way of making a larger point, which is a book. You're not, when you write a book, you're not writing a book. You're writing a series of chapters. A series of chapters are a series of sections. A series of sections are a series of paragraphs. And a series of paragraphs are a series of tools. And so the way to rewrite your story is to think about a wolf, a life quake, a life transition is you're essentially adding a new chapter to the story of your life. And there are specific things you can do. As you know, in my book, I talk about, you know, go from present tense to past tense. Because if you're in present tense, you're still stuck. And with past tense, you've got some distance. You know, make pigs fly. You know, if you start telling yourself that you're doing things, you actually will do it. But the most important is something that the psychologist Dan McAdams, who kind of invented narrative identity, talks a lot about, which is make sure that your story has a happy, that chapter has a happy happy ending. Mm -hmm. So even if it's a negative, even if it's a positive event, like, Boy, we just had the biggest month, quarter in our company's history, but we did it together and we stuck together and we worked hard and we adjusted and that's how we did it. Or dad died after a long illness and he suffered a lot at the end, but at least we came together as a family um, and it brought us all closer and now we're going to have a reunion um, every year. Fun fact, most family reunions grow out of funerals because people are reminded that they like to be together. So whether it's a positive or negative event, you want to make sure that that chapter, that that story has an upbeat ending. And by the way, you can make it up. You get no points for accuracy. <laughs> you, you get points for it being effective and allowing you to move on in your life. So we're all, I mean, I guess you can look at that two ways. I mean, one way is your story about yourself, I mean, maybe this is the more cynical, your story, everyone has a story about themselves, and they are all bullshit, right? And you might as well be constructive bullshit. That's one way of putting it. Maybe that's not the way you would put it. I mean, it must be somehow constrained by reality, right? I mean, and also there's the practical limit on the kind of person you can become. Like, you can say, now I'm becoming the person who's not afraid of X, but of course, to really be the person who's not afraid of X, it takes work. I mean, and it's, and you may not be able to do it. it it's hard. Um, so what about how constrained should we feel by the grim reality of ourselves? The, um, I don't feel we need to be that, I don't feel like we need to be that restrained. <laughs> I mean, make I, it understand, I understand bullshit. why you would say it because 
even because you're acting in this model of like this, you're, you're suggesting that the story is bullshit and the rea- the reality is the truth. <laughs> um, and, and that's not entirely clear. <laughs> that some t- that, that 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 there that, that the, the reality <laughs> also has some constructive identity <laughs> uh, has some constructive elements of it you know one of the things they tell you to do is compare down right Cheryl Sandberg tells the story in, in option B right her husband as we all know childhood friend of my wife's um, uh, has an accident when they're on vacation in Mexico falls on the on the treadmill and dies. She tells the story that Adam Grant says to her, how could it have been worse? And she's like, what do you mean, how could it have been worse? And she says, um, I, you know, he could have had that medical event when he was in a car with your children and they could have died. Like, the reality is grim, but there's always a reality that is worse. Mm-hmm. That is a coping mechanism. You could argue that it's making yourself feel better out of the situation, but that's called being alive. You know, I mean, I talked to a guy named named uh, named um, Chris Waddell. He was a mediocre college skier. This is the story I want to tell right now. Chris Waddell was a mediocre college skier at Middlebury. Who, but the summer before his sophomore year, has an accident on the slopes and loses the use of his legs. He goes through a difficult rehabilitation. Obviously, he's been wheelchair-bound ever since. He returns to school, and he becomes the country's top disabled skier on a monoski, which looks like a motorcycle with a ski. He then goes on to become a summer Paralympian in um, in uh, long-distance racing on a, on a hand-cranked wheelchair, okay? He's the most decorated Paralympian in American history. And he tells me, that retiring from his, from being a professional athlete at 35 is more difficult in his life than losing his legs to begin with. And so he struggles to find another thing to do. I say in my book, I, I call this like he's in between dreams. And he decides he's going to cl- cl- climb uh, Kilimanjaro and become the first person to summit Kilimanjaro uh, in a wheelchair. So he gets this ultimate people. He trains. He goes up. They're, they make a documentary about him. CBS News is broadcasting live from the top of Kilimanjaro. He gets. He goes all the way up. People lay these planks out, and he goes all the way up. He's a hundred feet from the top, and the boulders are too big, and he can't make it. And they have to pick him up and carry him. So the guides are dancing in Swahili, like they have the climax to their movie. He feels hollow and bankrupt inside. And he tells me it's not till he gets back and they're editing the movie that he realized that he missed the point all along. That he didn't want to be a part of telling the story of the heroic disabled person who overcame challenges to be a hero. He's, I don't want that narrative. In fact, this was a community event and I, and I needed them to get as far as I got. And then I needed them to get all the way. And I was telling the wrong story. So you tell me there. I told you at the beginning we wouldn't have this problem that that I was your friend and I was going to ruin your reputation of of, of looking only for you know for, to, to puncture sentimentality. You tell me there what's bullshit and what's the grim reality, because they're both present in both elements. There's grim reality to his accident. Okay. There's also narrative that allows him to, to reconstruct it. There's grim reality in the, you know, that he failed, and then there's also a narrative that he got there with everybody else. Like you can't separate. 
that life is about the relationship between reality and the story and, and affixing grimness and hope um, in whatever measure you choose. That's yeah, now that's certainly not a case where I can um, argue. I mean, that, that's that's that that's totally a case where there's a sequence of events that happened, and there's lots of ways of describing of of casting the sequence that are consistent with the facts, and 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 within that within those limits, you have complete freedom. That's and. The- that's exactly the point, Bob. We, we don't know that. I mean, after all these years of narrative theory, we don't really know. If I asked you, what is a story? What would you say? Like, we don't know what a story is. Mm-hmm. Like, the only thing people can agree on is there's two events connected over time. Mm-hmm. You know, as I say in my book, a snowball is not a story. A bloody nose is not a story. The relationship between the snowball and the story, the, the relationship between the snowball and the nose, that's a story. Okay. But we, one thing that everybody knows is that stories don't have inherent meaning. We have to give them inherent meaning. And that's the truth about our lives. I mean, do you agree with this? Do you agree that our lives don't have meaning, that we have to give them meaning? Um, You've thought about this. Well, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. I mean, I think life inherently has a kind of meaning. Sentient life inherently has a kind of meaning. But the kind of meaning you're talking about, uh, I agree, is uh, essentially assigned. Yeah, um, not life. You said life has meaning. I'm not talking about human life. Yeah. There's a human life outside of its participation in an echo, larger ecosystem of life, which can have meaning. Do you believe that each individual human life has meaning or does that meaning have to be assigned? Well, I, I, again, I, I think each individual life has meaning in the sense that, in the sense of just having moral value and being sacred and you don't walk up and, and end the life without having done something morally consequential, but you're, you're using meaning differently. And yeah, and, and, and no, I agree that, uh, that that is a construct. That is an assignment. Okay. This isn't, you know, this is a relatively recent construct in at least psychology, right? Is that we, that the way we assign that construct is through narrative because fundamentally in the past we all existed in ecosystems where we ha- where we inherited where the we, yeah that's the big change that right. allows this us to understand that we it is our job to make meaning now that is a burden that most people may not want but ironically what going through a life quake does is put it to the top of the agenda and that, I think, is fundamentally where we are now and why this book is resonating at this moment, because everybody is in a moment where we realize, because of the co- series of collective life quakes that we are in, the politics, as we talked about earlier, the pandemic, as we talked about earlier, even the protest movement and our, and our various places in the ecosystem of, of, Privilege, opportunity, discrimination, you know, historical legacies of our past, et cetera. We are in this moment, I think, where narrative identity and the challenge before us to make meaning is at its highest point, arguably since 9-11, but that was pretty ephemeral and not that many of us experienced it. Going back maybe the 60s in Vietnam with the women's rights and civil rights, but I would argue that it's really for the first time in a century that we are all going through this experience together. And I think that that's going to be fascinating because we are, while we're going through it together, we've been talking about this from the very beginning where we're having this collective involuntary life quake. 
the way each of us gonna, is going to respond is going to be voluntary and different. So your life quake is your life transition coming out of this life quake is going to be different from mine, different from your children, from my children, from our spouses, and from anybody listening to us. We each have to choose the way we're going to change. But I think because we're all for the first three or four months of the pandemic, I think we could reasonably, a lot of people, you could reasonably believe, and most people clung to the idea that we're going back. No one can cling to that anymore. We're not going back. We're going to someplace entirely. We don't know where. And that's going to be the second wave. I, I think we, I think we're now at the point where we, we're beginning to realize CDC and the WHO have recently said this, you know, implied this, I would say, that the mental health and personal and identity impact of COVID is going to prove to be greater even than the economic and the medical one. Mm. So the, the, the fact that in now more than ever, we have freedom in constructing our stories is in a certain sense, the flip side of the fact that now more than ever, we have to, we have to construct it. In other words, I mean, if you look at yes. some of the things about our environment that give right, that make life quakes in your view, more common maybe than they would have been uh, 70, 80 years ago. Um, those, those are also uh, liberating things in a, in, in a certain sense. I mean, it, just to take one example, you look at the, at the internet, social media, it is in one sense disruptive and, and uh, it, it, it may give, you know, it could afflict me with traumas that I have to deal with uh, and be a disruptor. And, and and that's probably true. On the other hand, it's it's a realm in which I'm free to I don't, I don't mean not reinvent myself, but but create a new a new version of me in a way that wasn't wasn't possible 50 years ago. So I, I think one one. Um, I think an analogy can be helpful to, to this part of the conversation. Right. And that is that. Some people are born into life quakes. If you have a broken family, you know, if you have an addiction of some kind in your family, some people have life quakes in their teenage years when they lose a parent um, or they move or they migrate countries, as a lot of people I talk to did. You can have life quakes all through your life. Obviously, I, you know, I call this the whenever life crisis, the, the midlife crisis model we have to dismiss. <laughs> if you are between 39 and 45 in 2020, you're having a midlife crisis. But if you're between 29 and 34, you're also having a crisis or everybody's having a crisis at the same time. But what I was saying was that, so it's just, I want to kind of remind and put back on the table something that we've kind of brushed past, which is the idea that these life quakes take on average five years to get through. And, um, and I want to use as an example, college. So what college is for most people who go to college is kind of the first collective voluntary life quake that they go through. Okay. What are the phases? Uh, and that leads to a life transition. Okay. So what is the transition involved? The long goodbye where you, where you say goodbye to your old self. You know, that's part of going to college, right? Which is that you go and you have to shed that previous uh, identity where you're taken care of by your parents and, and everything is, you know, kind of given to you. Then there's the messy middle where you, you know, give up certain habits and you experiment with new selves and new parts of yourself. And then there's the new beginning where you come out and you unveil your new self. So I've said that the average length is four or five years. Lo and behold, what is college? It's four or five years. Okay, and that's a great analogy and exactly the time frame and something that everybody can understand. 
cut to today, right? And so you said that we all have this experience, the opportunity, but the, one of the problems with social media is that you're doing it all the time. Mm-hmm. Think back to when you were in college. Would you have wanted to document every one of these phases? Would you have wanted to be updating it all of the time? No. Like that's part of the problem is that we are doing it out loud and leaving this permanent record. And the permanent record, you know, once you write it down, whether you're writing it on Instagram or Snapchat or, you know, TikTok or Instagram story or whatever it might be, once you write it, that becomes part of the process and you're kind of somewhat constrained um, by this whole thing. And so what I want to say is that the process is messy and we are doing it in public, which makes it a lot harder, but it is simply just going to take a long time. Mm-hmm. And that that's okay, and that's a healthy part of the process. Okay. Well, I, I think um, that's a, a good note to, uh, to leave people with. Is there anything else, anything else you want to say that you think we've left out? Well, so I can buy this book. I'll say that. Buy this book. Well, I appreciate that. And, and, you know, and, and reach out to me. You can find me on all those social medias and, you know, tweet right. what is your, stuff. what is your Twitter handle? It's Bruce Feiler, B-R-U-C-E-F-E-I-L-E-R. And I'm on, you know, all of them, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, you can send me questions or complain or push back or tell me what stories or what um, ideas resonate most of all. Well, since we have been a, a bit in this downer place at the end, I do, I, I'll end, uh, dare I say it on an upbeat note, and I'll say, Transitions work. <laughs> That's what I want to say. 90% of the people I talked to said they got through their life quake and their life transition. And so that's why this book is called Life is in the Transitions. Again, back to this idea of reviving an old idea. That's something that William James said a century ago. Life is in the transitions even more than the terms connected. As long as we're going to go through these life quakes three to five times in our lives, and as long as they're going to take four or five years, we have to get over this idea that we have to sort of grit and grind and kind of grovel our way through. We need to see them as what they are, which is opportunities for renewal and growth if you go through the process. So I want to say is whatever you're going through, I may have been there, but more importantly, I found someone who's been there. I mean, you've alluded to this several times. I mean, you're going to see people in this book who've been through far worse, um, I believe, than you've been through. And not, they're not just going to give you inspiration in kind of an empty way. They're going to give you actual practical tools that you can do tonight or tomorrow or next week that will help you get, with, get through this so that whatever you're struggling through and whatever life transition you're now you're in right now, we can make them go better and mm-hmm. a lot more effectively. And I can add that you speak from experience. I mean, your, your, your life quake was, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I visited you and you were, uh, undergoing chemotherapy. That was serious, uh, that was a serious time and you, uh, were very impressive, uh, in your emergence from all that. So congratulations, congratulations on the success of the book. Thank life you. is in the transitions, mastering change at any age. Uh, and, uh, we'll, we will, See you down the road, Bruce. Um, that echoes the point I made at the beginning that you're a good friend and having me here is just part of that. So see Dude. you soon and thank you very much. Okay. We will see you.